0: When you're ready, let's start this game.
1: Welcome to Unstacked, and let's unwind with debut author Sarah Elarifi. Let's find out about her writing process and her brilliant new fantasy novel, The Final Strife. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library.
0: Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library.
1: Hi, I'm Sara el the author of The Final Strife.
0: So can you introduce our listeners to The Final Strife? Uh, That's, uh, From what I understand, that's book one of the Ending Fire trilogy.
2: Yes, indeed. So uh, The Final Strife is set in a world ruled by blood. It's kind of the currency of the social order and the conduit of the magic system. So clear-blooded are servants, blue-blooded are the labourers, and red-blooded are the nobility. Um, the story follows three women, a red-blooded turn, rebel turned drug addict, a blue-blooded masquerading as the ruler's daughter, and a clear-blooded servant and spy. And the story begins at the start of the Act of Our Trials, which is kind of a competition to find the next rulers of the empire. And so the stage is set for kind of rebellion to brew and blood to flow, dot, dot, dot.
0: <laughs> what kind of started your desire to be a writer?
2: Oh, ever since I was a kid, I was always telling lies. Like I was just the biggest liar. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. I was so, I just, I took for about a year. I told people that I could fly and I was like convincing as many people as possible. I was like, I can absolutely fly. And I realized like, hey, you should be a storyteller. And this was from a really young age. I was like, I love the make-believe. I love magic. And. I feel like writing stories is the closest you can ever get to magic. It really is so incredible. I'm so lucky to be able to do it as my full time job. I'm just like, yeah, still living this dream somehow. So yeah, from the very beginning, it it started with lies and it turned into stories.
0: You know, the flying is easy. It's the landing that I always have
2: trouble with. That is true. Yes, it's the landing. You're so right. It is. It's the landing. (laughs)
1: The element of storytelling embedded in the final strife as well, even starting from those first sentences, which is what I loved about the story and what hooked me immediately. There are segments of folk tales and poems sprinkled throughout that help build your world and societal structures within, and much is inspired by Ghana folklore and Arabian myths. Can you tell us a little bit more about your inspirations and how you were able to build your own mythologies for the final strife? Absolutely. Um, so I spent a really long
2: time writing the wrong kind of stories. I, there was this one, this one novel that I'd been writing for about 14 years. I was constantly just re-evaluating it, re-editing it, rewriting it. I was convinced it was the one. I was convinced it was the one that was going to get published. And um, it wasn't. It was really bad. Honestly, it was just like the worst. It was the worst thing I've ever written. Now I think about it, I just want to cringe. But anyway 14 years I kept writing the story and one of the things I realized was that the main character was a white middle class boy everything that I'm not and the reason I I believe the reason that I was doing that was that I was trying to replicate what I had put on my bookshelves and what happened to be on my bookshelves was the things that were most commercially available available to me as a kid Um, I spent a lot of my time in libraries like literally no one (laughs) no one could ever find me, I was always in the library, there was one um, library in the Middle East in um, Abu Dhabi where I grew up that uh, a family friend, she actually became really close, she was basically like my grandma, um, this librarian who would literally just bring me all the books, I just inhaled them, libraries are such a big part of my life but what I wasn't realising was that I wasn't educating myself beyond what was most commercially available at that time and those were Novels where the main character was a white middle class boy, um, as so I was replicating those, and I was re- replicating tropes as well that were so ingrained in the genre that I didn't even I didn't even know what that was. I didn't understand like the chosen one trope, et cetera. and it was only in kind of realizing that I was doing this, that I didn't know the genre as well as I thought I did that the fact that I needed to educate myself beyond what I had lined my bookshelves with that I started to think okay, hang on. Why don't you write something for you? Why don't you write something that is possibly the most self-indulgent thing you could write? That is, you finding yourself in your thirties as a black woman. Who are you? And that's really where I started with the final strife. I'm so lucky that I got it published because it, it, you know, you can't. I can't really sit here and go, oh yeah, it was a self-indulgent project, but it was because it was, it was, it was so important to me to actually like find myself in the words and develop like my connection to my roots and you know I was raised in the Middle East but then my mum is Ghanaian West African and English and my father Sudanese. And so that is the most hodgepodge of of ethnicities under one roof. My mum raised Christian, my mum my dad raised Muslim, married in secret, amazing story. One day I'll write it. But this kind of incredible blurring of cultures I had growing up and then moving to the UK. I, I didn't know who I was I didn't know my own identity I just, couldn't put myself into a box and it was in writing The Final Strife that I worked through those kind of elements of myself so yeah the inspiration behind it was me it <laughs> sounds so silly but it's true I was like yeah okay who who the hell are you um and that's where I I started and yeah as I as I progressed I started delving a lot into history and re-educating myself on history because you know very much in the US as well, there is a certain curriculum um, that omits a lot. And it was in that kind of silence, I, I grew the world of the final strife, some of the stories that um, I was reading, I had never heard of King Leopold II. And what he'd done in the Belgian Congo, that was wild to me to hear that there was a genocide of up to, although the estimates uh, vary between eight and 11 million deaths under his, under his rule. That's, I was like, wow, I've never even heard of him. And which is wild because, you know, I actually I studied history for a long time and that that completely passed me by, which is, yeah, it's there's so much in our in in our history that is silent and, and hasn't been told. And I think I tried to find some truth in that as well. So started with me, then turned to history and tried to like reclaim some of that silence through a fantasy novel.
0: I love that and you you talk about how your journey as a start of a writer was about telling because you're good at lies yet to 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 make this beautiful book it was all about telling the truth that was within like yeah. that kind of duality of it is, is beautiful
2: right yeah I wasn't <laughs> intending that but let's go with it that's
1: amazing. Anansi <laughs> is kind of woven throughout yeah. the final stripe as well and it was something where I didn't start noticing it until like later on and I wish I had been paying more attention to spiders from the beginning. (laughs) Is there anything else that like a new reader that you might suggest hey keep an eye on this while they're reading it?
2: Oh it's it's really interesting because there are so many different influences throughout the novel. Um, There is uh, there's a poem that I uh, kind of recently a reader found uh, so i've got epigraphs at the beginning of every chapter and they show you a little bit of the world and one of those epigraphs is a poem called the um, the embers burden and uh, the embers are the red-blooded the nobility the highest caste system and there was a reader uh, who had noticed that the rhythm and certain words were very similar to the white man's burden by rudyard kipling and it was one of those moments i was like yes Someone noticed, yes. So there's so many like little Easter eggs almost um within the entire novel that everything that is there is placed for a reason. And Nancy the Spider was such a big part of the storytelling uh background that I came from my mum telling me stories about Nancy the Spider was some of the earliest memories that I have. And so that was weaved in from the get-go. But there is so much without I don't want to because there's a lot of spoilers and there's a lot of twists in the book. I don't want to spoil anything, but there is there is a lot there based on either history or um other literature uh that I've kind of stretched and and pulled apart uh there's there's this folk tales um like the Tannin, which is uh arabic myth from Arabic mythology there's little hints of a thousand and one uh, nights you know there's so many things that I have kind of purposely placed there, and I don't want to share them all because I want people to it's that like little joy like oh, I found something. And I want people to be able to discover that because I think that's just really fun. And also, if they don't, that's fine as well. It just gives the depthness, um for me as the writer. And also, hopefully, the reader senses some of that, even, even if they don't get all, you know, there, there's no way everyone could get every single Easter egg I've put in this book.
0: <laughs> so, you kind of touched on this a lot in, in these first couple of questions about the research that you do to put into these books. You talked about how you had one that you've, uh, a book that you'll, probably never see the light that you've worked never. on for 14 years. So how long did you put into your research for, say, the final strife in order to get it to where it was?
2: So the final strife was really interesting. It um, I wrote it in four months, a complete haze. I was working full time as well. I was doing a lot of travel to the Middle East with my job, and I found myself on long haul flights a lot. And so I was just this book was just coming out for me. I was like, where is this coming from? And the first draft was bare bones. It was just the the main story. And again, kind of the pieces of me, you know, the world that I've created was everything everything that I'd grown up with, um, apart from the blue sand dunes, I wish. Um, and so it was bare bones. And then it was only in kind of second and third drafts that I thought, right, you need to let's hunker down on first of all the world. And I I would say, It's an interesting concept. I definitely did research into my own world because I had, you know, you write a story and you're like, oh, this is happening. And then your editor will be like, so what's the education system? And I was like, what? I haven't even thought of that. And so then you end up writing basically another book on the education system in a world that doesn't exist and it only features in one sentence in the whole book. And so I've got an entire, I would say I've got like an entire book of the law of the land. And that includes things like, the government structure I know every single role in government the education society the even just things like how sewage runs through the city just like the most the most inane things that I, I I just had to I had to start building from the ground up because I would use you know flyaway comments and not really think about what that meant so for example I have lizards called Eru's, which are rideable very fun Um, however you can't really put that in a novel and not explain how that works so then I go very much the other way and go okay (laughs) let's draw a carriage (laughs) let's do research on how lizards move how their rumps move how a carriage would work on top of a lizard okay so I've got to change the anatomy slightly in order for that you know it, it becomes like a real real deep rabbit hole um, but then I, at the end of it, I've got pages and pages on how this carriage works with this made up creature. <laughs> so there is, the, on one hand, the research I had to do in my own world, which is a lot, a lot. Like, I can't tell you how many hours, but many, you know, even just drawing the maps, it was the maps in themselves took me weeks, weeks and weeks of like really detailed. Like, OK, so if you went here, how long would it take you to walk? just like stuff that might be a flyaway comment but I had to make sure I got it right and I'm sure there's so many errors still but I spent a long time knowing okay this is the compass where are we going um but then also on the flip side it's the history it's the the kind of the depthness the richness that I've talked about previously it's looking at the silence and in, in what I had been taught and thinking okay how do I just build on that so I mentioned King Le- King Leopold II and I think That was because that was such a big moment for me to realize, oh my goodness, like, am I stupid? Like, I've gone through university, I've done my A levels, I've done everything that, you know, education wise, I should know about the basics of King Leopold II, this genocide that no one talks about. And it was such a kind of shocking moment for me that it did influence the way that I approached, for example, the ghostings who um, are a race who have their hands chopped off at birth. And that was a practice that uh, King Leopold brought about. There's varying degrees on how many people didn't have hands, but there was a huge amount of people in the Congo, in the Belgian Congo, that did not have hands. Um, They used hands as a form of, uh, removing hands as a form of punishment, they used it as a form of currency. And they also, if they wanted to prove, if soldiers wanted to prove that they used a bullet, they had to prove that they didn't use it in hunting, because animals were too precious, they had to prove that they used it on a black person Um, so who were less precious in the eyes of uh, the Belgian Congo so then they would remove hands and those hands were often smoked and sent to the king which is wild so that is something that um, influenced the way that I saw the, the empire that the empire that I created so every single violence in the novel and it's a very violent novel is based on truth and it's when people say to me, said to me, oh, my mum said to me, oh, you know, so violent, didn't read anything. I didn't read any of the violence. I was like, what did you read? Um, but I think, you know, when when you realise actually every single bit of violence in this novel is based, it has a grain of truth. Yeah, it, it comes from our history. That's quite horrifying because it, it's like, oh, OK, yeah, it's not it's not very it's not very fun to go back in time and, and even to live in the present. So I think, yeah, it was. Um, doing that side of it was really grueling on me. And um, just to kind of also battle with the world at, at large at the time. So when I was editing, so I did sell the novel, but at this point, but while I was editing, it was the Black Lives Matter process had started. And that was, you know, as a, as a Black person was just one of the most it just felt like carrying around like a black cloud on your back. It was it was just such a hard time. and I think doing those edits whilst also then delving into the truth of history, oof, it was some dark months. But I'm really glad that I did because the world that I created is enriched by that. Even if it's a dark, uh, you know, the dark side of it, it's it's important to me. It, it was something that I wanted to do and be able to speak about.
1: And that silencing of history is such a big part as well, even silencing the ghostings and yeah. and wrapped in absolutely
0: so obviously, there is a significant amount of of writing done behind the scenes for this. I mean, how much of that translates into the book? I mean obviously you know it's a it's a it's a good sized book, but it sounds like there's at least three or four <laughs> more books out there as well as far as yeah. research. So what survives the edit?
2: Oh, it's so funny because what I honestly, and this is, swear to God, truth. I thought that editors, once you sold your book, I thought that editors then go in and edit the book. Like you don't have to do anything. I thought I just had to say yes or no. Like actually that was genuinely what I thought would happen. And then I realised, and I love my editors so much, they're so fantastic. I realised that what editors do fundamentally is ask you questions. They'll be like, so why are you doing this? So why have you not included this? So what's the motivation here and those questions lead to many many more words so the novel as i sold it i sold the novel and it was about 300 pages it's now standing at 650 so um and i would say of those original 300 pages maybe 50 pages remained so i did considerable edits on what i sold which i'm so glad because I needed that kind of it was my first book you know it was my first experience with editors realizing they didn't do the work I did obviously they work but I I had to do the actual writing um so yeah so going through that was a whole process for me and I'm just so lucky that I was allowed I was able to work full-time because it was full-time I was this was during in the UK I think we'd had three lockdowns during my edit process which were thankfully helpful for me because I could not leave the house so I had to edit so I had to write that next you know 400 pages and it was solid it was a solid year year and two months that I worked on the book before we got to the completed manuscript and then obviously it's copy edits but yeah I when I got my edits back for book two I was so prepared to like have to rewrite the whole thing and actually it boiled down to three bullet points and one of them was the book title and I was like oh my goodness, my <laughs> goodness i was like i can't do a year and two months again um but yeah it was my my editor says it's like um the writing behind the scenes is it's it's like an iceberg the whole novel's an iceberg like all the information that you you write is underneath and then what the reader sees is just the tip and i'm like yeah my iceberg is absolutely the one that brought down the titanic
0: it is big it is big (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I love that because normally when you people think about editing you you think about oh I had a thousand and a half pages and I got it down to 600 but that's the, yeah. the fact that it went from 300 down to 50 up to 600 <laughs> just yeah. based on that is is, is an interesting yeah. that's something that you don't actually think about a lot with editing
2: yeah absolutely I went totally the other way around I'm an <laughs> underwriter so that was when my editor was like okay so you've described this lizard but how does the lizard work? So, like, how do you ride the lizard? <laughs> like, how does this carriage work? You've just talked about a carriage. At one stage, the carriage was on the back of the lizard. I was like, okay, yeah, no, I need to I need to write about the lizards. So <laughs> then I'd go off for two days and write <laughs> and write and research about lizards. So yeah, there's there was a, a considerable amount of additional world building that I had to do during edits, which were was amazing because like for book two, I was like, okay. I literally have a glossary of every single thing, every single flora and fauna. And, you know, I know I could, you could drop me in the middle of this world, and I would know absolutely everything about it. So yeah, it's it's been helpful, but it was, it was uh, a lot of work.
1: And it's a, a trilogy. So how do you kind of plot for three titles? Do you do one at a time? Do you have an overarching kind of you know outline <laughs> <laughs> oh this is a funny story as well because <laughs> I just can't plot
2: even when I like try and plot it would the whole story will it was almost like go against it just to spite me and I'll be like but you have plotted and like the story would be like nah no I'm okay I'm not I'm not gonna do that today and so when my agent said to me look we're gonna because I when I'd written the final strife I had an idea of what the ending was going to be a very very vague idea but one of the things i had been told was like don't concentrate on book 2 and 3 concentrate on one because you might only be able to sell one book just concentrate on one don't worry about 2 and 3 they can come later so then when my agent said to me look we need to send a synopsis of book 2 and 3 to publishers in order to sell them i was like oh, oh, oh crap she was like yeah can you can you send that to me in the next hour and i was like no i can send it you tomorrow And at the time I was still working full time. So I pulled a sick day. (laughs) I'm so sorry, boss. I didn't tell you the truth. I pulled a sick day and I sat down and I plotted and plotted and plotted until I had kind of cajoled this two more synopses out of my head. And then, so when it came down to starting book two, I was like, great, I've got the synopsis for this. And then I started writing and I'm telling you not one word is in the, the finished project, not one word, maybe and that's it. So then what they have bought is not what I've sold them. So you know, <laughs> it's fine. They liked it. So that was the main thing. And actually, I think I have one of those rare things. And a lot of writers really struggle with book two. I think maybe my struggle will be book three because book two came so easily. It was I just loved every second of writing it. And my editors actually said to me, this is this is the rare book where it's better than book 1 and I was like is it yes i cried because i was like wow um because it just it you know there's so much you just don't know you have as a writer you have no idea no gauge on whether anything's good or not so when someone like gives you that justification you're like oh my goodness okay i've done it i've done book 2 but yeah the plotting was non-existent so i don't know what's going to happen with book 3 because i have an idea i have an idea but is it going to happen who knows and that's the thing, because I, I also layer so many twists. So it's always really, that was a, it was really important for me to finish book two before I finished book one, so that I could go back and, and sow a lot of seeds. And that's one of the fa- my favourite things, is like landing twists and just like putting in, oh yeah, so this won't, you won't figure this out until book three, but I'm putting it in now. So that is like, oh, I just love that. So I've done a lot of that.
1: And I so enjoyed book one and even, so it's a long title. I was one where I just wanted to stay in the world. So I'm very excited for book two.
2: <laughs> Yay, good. I'm so excited to like have it out in the world. I can't even tell people the title yet, but it's also like it's a it's less than a year away now. This it's gonna go really fast. So yeah, I'm
0: excited. And it kind of talked about it just a second ago with your questioning whether or not your your second is like is it kind of stuff and and reading through some of your your feed there's you talk a little bit about the self-doubt that you have about the writing. And obviously it is such a stark contrast to what we we the the readers are getting because I mean you're a Sunday Times bestseller. Um, you you've got bidding wars for your the the, the publication rights here. Amazon best book of June of 2022. It might be the fantasy novel of the year. It's mad. <laughs> how? Uh, so I guess the question in there is, how did you think the release of the book was going to go versus how it's actually going?
2: Yeah, I think oh, it's it's so strange because us writers we're just we fundamentally are crazy people because we have decided to write books and um and basically put our heart on the page so it's so so personal and you know i've i've had many jobs in my career and there's something even 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 if i was you know i had my i had two phones next to me at night one where my clients could call me and one that was my personal you still are able to separate whereas with being a writer I never turn off. I'm always thinking about my characters. Even if I'm just sitting there watching another, you know, watching Stranger Things, I'm like, oh, that character's interesting. How do I take that character and make it the, you know, there's always inspiration. Your brain's never turning off. To put it bluntly, I'm just constantly, my brain is exhausted because I am always, always spinning stories. And I think what then happens is that you have no connection to what is really happening around you. Like, even when you say these things to me, like Sunday Times Bestseller, I'm like, yeah, but but the book's terrible. <laughs> so it's 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 just wild because I can't. I it, I have been really lucky to have some great reviews and to have some wonderful readers, and I do objectively understand that a publishing house would not spend money on a book that they didn't think was good. I understand objectively, but the doubts that like plague you, as especially during those lockdowns, where I'm sitting alone in at my desk. I have no one to, you know, I can't if I want to explain a thought that I have about my art or my creation, I have to fill in the three days of conversation that I've been having with myself to bring that person up to speed. So it's a very lonely job because you're you're just sitting there and you're trying to kind of come up with these solutions to problems that you've made yourself. (laughs) And I think that is a breeding ground for anxiety. Publication week was incredible and getting Sunday Times bestseller incredible. And I've had some amazing things in the last few days as well. But you always, you just have this I don't know, you're just like constantly like, am I good enough for this? And I do think a lot of it comes down to the publishing industry in particular is not accessible. It's not very see through to the people who are on the other side. So I'm still learning terms that I, you know, I've I've been a full time writer for two years, but I'm still. Don't know, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. I'm like constantly learning. Every day is a school day. And I'm like, what? What does that mean? Oh, another contract's come through. What is special sale? There's so many things I'm like having to ask questions about because you can't Google that stuff. It's not, it's not, no one's transparent about it. So it's really hard to know if you're a burden. And I think that's a real thing that authors feel, even though they're essentially the makers of the product you do feel like a burden all the time <laughs> so it's battling with those anxieties whilst also going i'm so lucky i'm so privileged I'm, I'm i'm literally living my dream but to see the response is just the best feeling because i i just want other i i just wish i'd had a novel like this growing up a novel that made me question a novel and those the thing is those novels are out there absolutely there are so many incredible black owned voices um novels that i wish i'd had access to but i i lived in a very white small village and those were not the books that were brought in so i i i didn't have access to it and i think i'm just so glad that this is a conversation we're having now that we can say you know we need more variety on our bookshelves and yeah i and i'm so lucky to be part of that conversation and part of that journey i think it's uh yeah 10 year old me would be astounded to see where i am right now so yeah that's that's when i when i have those anxieties i just think back okay look how far you've come look what you're doing and yeah but no the anxiety is still there
0: <laughs> we uh talked to amy mccullough she was oh with, i love amy and uh, we were talking about uh, imposter syndrome and and yes. you know it, it's amazing to see how many writers feel that way yeah. So what would it, I mean, what would it take? What would, is there any one thing that would make it suddenly that bubble burst and you'd be like, darn it. Yeah, I do belong here.
2: (laughs) If you figure out, let me know. So I think it's so funny because Amy, I actually think is a superwoman. So, and I tell her all the time, like, you're literally the best person. Like, how can you feel imposter syndrome? But it's funny because it doesn't, It doesn't compute when you're feeling that way. And I I do think, I do wonder whether it's more time. It's time with yourself engaging because someone said to me the other day, it was like, do you think of yourself as successful? I said, absolutely. Like I was successful from day one of getting an agent. I was successful from finishing a book because that is a huge feat. Um, And I think it is a, a mental state of mind success. And so taking that approach and applying it to imposter syndrome it almost feels like I need time to, to move through that, to, to encourage myself to go, you know, you, you belong here. It's hard. It's really hard because yeah, it's, it's also a very white industry. So when I go to events, it's like, oh, okay, it's just me. So it, it's, it's really, and so I, there's the added layer of like, not just imposter syndrome, but also race, like, who am I to belong here? I didn't go to Oxidos Cambridge. I can barely spell, you know, there's these these additional, anxieties that you have to battle with. and i think i'm hoping time and just a, a mental rewiring of imposter syndrome in my head will will help me
0: going we, we talked about not plotting obviously the way i kind of looked at the the story is that you're you're exploring this city with us in a way so there's times where you're you as a writer are going down i mean not this is what i don't take this as I'm saying this, we're going down dead ends in, in the book or anything of that nature. But sometimes, you know, when you're writing, you go down some way and you end up with a dead end and it's not the best story kind of thing. Yeah. So how do you, when you're getting there, how do you find, how do you, how far into do, those alleyways do you get before you realize, no, no, this wasn't the one I wanted to take. Let's back up to the main road kind of thing.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really good metaphor actually. And I would say I've I've been through a few, but it's it's hard to recognize when you're down that alleyway, when you're in it. And I think there was, in particular, there was my first two or three chapters, I've rewritten them about 11 times. Because I was so convinced that that first draft was the right one, I kept kind of shoving the story into the wrong space. And I was like, no, it doesn't need to be there, no, it doesn't need to be there. And that's when my editors really helped guide me, although it still took like 11 tries. (laughs) we got there but it was really hard to realize hang on this is not relevant at all and there's such a careful balance you must do at the beginning of any novel because what I had done in the first draft was that I had kind of dropped which was had been my style previously was dropping a reader into a world and not explaining anything and just learning as you go which actually in a world that is so so different from our own you know there are no horses here you have to linger in some of the moments you have to linger in explaining the caste system in you have to actually tell and not show and because that had been told so many times you need to show and not tell you know show us that she's angry don't say she's angry and absolutely when it comes to emotion I agree but I think there are actually particularly in epic fantasy that you have to you have to tell in order to pull the reader in And that was such a balancing act because it wasn't my style. I'd never done that before. I'd never lingered on explaining how a tree worked or, you know, lingered on how a harness attached to a carriage. It was something that I was encouraged to do and explore more. And so when I was doing that, sometimes I went too far. And then i would go down an alleyway that was so not relevant. I'll be like, okay, let's 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 actually take Sila down an alleyway just to teach people about this tavern what the tavern's not important it comes up in book two why are we doing this so it was like it was constantly rerouting myself to make sure that I was always plot first like is this relevant to the main storyline or is it not and I think that was a main <laughs> a main uh, tagline that I had to keep in mind myself is this important to the
1: plot um and then back up okay main road let's go your main characters are three amazing women Sila, Anor, and Hasa and I love their relationships with each other, Syla being the connector character. How did you develop their characters, and what made you decide on the three different blood class structures, the ghostings, dustings, and embers? So when it comes to the
2: characters, Sila absolutely exploded into my mind. I was like, oh, here she is. She's a hot mess. She is she just and she actually she started off as a chosen one I was very aware of the trope by this point I was like I know I understand the chosen one trope I'm not going to subvert it at the fir- at first instinct I was like I'm going to play into it and then it was her that ended up being too high to follow through on the chosen one trope and I was like oh okay oh you're the chosen one but you've missed your calling and then when I realized that every single element of her character kind of just fell into my lap and I was like I understand exactly where you're coming from and understand your pain and there's so many aspects of every character that has um, elements of me in but with Sila there was something really important that I wanted to convey and that was in drug addiction I wanted to also get that right and I'm not saying that I get everything right but I think that was something that I worked really hard on with her because she is like relief in some ways because she's a hot mess and she'll stumble into a scene and she'll make a joke and she'll fall on her face. But at the same time, there is this darkness in that and um, the truth behind why she was self medicating. And so I had to create a drug that didn't exist, but also develop the medical implications of it. So I had to know what type of drug it was Is it an opiate? How does it land on the spectrum of our world? How do I translate everything from the medical terminology of of drug addiction to this world that I've created? And I think that was a big piece of work that I I did. And I also started a a tracker based on every scene that Sila is in because it's so important to her story. How is she feeling in every single scene? Is she slightly angry in this scene because she's having particularly bad withdrawals? What symptoms of those withdrawals is she having? Um, and so in any scene throughout the whole book, I, can, I have a tracker of exactly how she's feeling when it comes to the drug addiction. And that was really important because it was a piece I wanted to make sure came across authentic, even though it was all made up. It needed to be done in a way that conveyed it as the mental illness that it is. And so in doing that, I was creating a full, fuller rounded character than perhaps my first draft had been. Now, with Anur, she was always going to be the opposite. She was always going to be the opposite. And it was actually in writing her that I realized, huh, actually, Scylla and Anur are so similar. They have very, very similar traits. And it was connecting that as I was writing them. I was like, okay, this is really important. I've realized that they have very similar traits, even though they are very different characters. You know, one's the angry rebel, one's uh, almost the spoiled princess. But then the the struggle was how do you make sure that you're writing points of views from these two characters without saying okay this is a nor and this is Syla how do you signpost to the reader and it was that it was like rem- remembering my like how they speak how they think just keeping that alive in each scene was such that was tricky work because I write chronologically so I don't go, okay, I'm doing all of Silas scenes and I'm gonna do all of Anur scenes. I go, okay, now this feels like an Anur scene. And so then it would be like, okay, I need to rewire my brain for this and write. And it was that was quite, quite difficult. And I will say the first draft was about 50% Silo, 50% Anur. And then there was this character called Hassa who kept creeping in from the margins. And I was like, I like this character. I did nearly no work on her. At the time, at the first draft, maybe, you know, I knew what she looked like. I knew that she was a spy, and that was about it. And she kept developing and developing and developing and just started taking over chapters and st- taking over scenes. And in so many ways, as the heroine of the whole book. And she is one of my favorites. She's just brilliant. And so many people's favorites, actually. I think she's probably. I've heard from most people that she's a favorite, which makes me so happy because she was silent and I was silencing her and I have let her speak. And that made me, I was like, this is the piece that's missing from this trilogy, Hassa. And actually in book two, she takes over a third of the whole plot. So it's been really amazing seeing this character grow. And it's so unexpected to me because I always thought, it's to your point of view, but actually, no, it was always going to be three. And it was Hassa that crept in and absolutely stole the show.
1: I really enjoy her character as well and um, part of the element that I appreciate as well as your use of dialogue and a lot of that's a Nora and Silas dialogue as well it's almost like if a rom-com was tucked inside (laughs) of a fantasy so there's like a lot of sweet moments and it's really fun um so what is your relationship in developing dialogue
2: It's it's really interesting because, again, that first draft, the short draft, was about 90% dialogue. I love dialogue. It's my favourite thing. I'm like, oh, okay, we've got description. Let's skip that. Let's go to dialogue. And I think that's to do with a lot of my background. So I, I actually started, although I've been writing novels ever since I was about four, I did then train in playwriting and screenwriting. So I was used to that kind of back and forth of telling a story through dialogue. So that absolutely influenced the way that I was writing the novel because I, I can't wait for those moments. Those moments between um, two characters in a scene and it's like that hint of yearning, but maybe not, but maybe, is there? And I just, I yeah, that's the bit that I love to explore. And dialogue for me is the the main aim of writing. I'm like, how do I get to the next bit of dialogue? Um, because I just love it. And I, I was really worried actually my first draft, I remember talking to a friend of mine, I said, you know, this is ninety-five percent dialogue. Is this a problem? I'm like, oh, it's a bit stylized. And yes, turns out it was a problem, <laughs> and I did need to write more description. But um, I, I do love dialogue, and for me, it's like the the bread and butter of writing. It's like, how do I get to that next piece of banter? Because it's
1: really, it's just fun. And Nora really feels like one of my friends. Like, I swear, yeah. I could pick out a couple of of my friends that I'm like, uh, yep, yep. <laughs> Yeah, you're a no. <laughs> you're a no. <laughs> <laughs> totally.
0: <laughs> we we talked about how the real life events kind of influence some of the writing. So kind of taking the spin on that question, to what extent do you think fiction can improve human life?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think fiction is so important in the way that we emote as humans, I think. We can process things through fiction as not just a writer but a reader. We begin to question things, but you know, even just the way that I approached gender, which was a huge different another research piece, and probably actually the biggest research piece I did in building the, the world of the final strife um and consulting with multiple trans people and doing a lot of gender theory reading even in in that building a world that was non binary was was mind-blowing to me and it's, it's it's made me see the world in a totally different way and I think fiction can do that fiction can give us hope it can also help us work through pain and um the questions that we currently have because you know I'm talking about oh you know a, a, a world that's non-binary but there are still you can identify as a woman or a man um, you can also identify as Masawa, so which is a third gender which I created based on a lot of uh, tribal in- influence and pre-colonisation influence. There are answers in fiction, and there are also questions, and I think that's why it is the best way we can work through things as as humans. Um, yeah, I, I I really do think it's everyone in Parliament <laughs> should read a fantasy book. maybe that will make things better I don't know
1: well I was even thinking while I was you know reading it and all the stuff that was happening here too I'm like oh man (laughs) I I could see parallels just politically (laughs) yeah absolutely
2: it's like you build a world that's based on the horrors of empire and then you're like oh we're not that far from that world anymore
1: first I love the artwork that's in your room it's beautiful thank you and then i was going to ask you about the cover art of your books because you have two covers you have the uk yeah. version as well as the us version and both are so stylized so differently so one more has the it's got the african print textile patterning in the back and it's got sila on the cover and the other one is more arabic and designed for the uk version and there's no figure and it's just the design so do you have any input in design
2: Yeah, I was so lucky because I've heard many horror stories of authors who were like, pick between A and B, and the only difference between A and B is like the font is bolded. So I was really lucky in that I was brought in so early. I think the US cover, so the one with Silo on the front, I was brought in about a year before publication. So um, I actually chose the illustrator, um, which was also amazing. I then got to work on briefing Um, him with the art department which also made me realize that I don't I don't know what my characters look like even though I I have character cards with like exactly every single feature I'm like this is what her nose looks like in my head I don't know what they look like so which is wild I had never realized this until briefing the cover so that was really interesting because I was like I know who she is I feel her in my head I don't I can't tell you what exactly, like, if you drew her, I wouldn't be like that, Scylla. So that was a really interesting process and like seeing that come to life. And yeah, they always wanted Scylla on the cover, which is great. We're probably going to have Anor and Hassa for book two and three, um, which is really exciting. So yeah, I'm, I, that was just a dream um, to work with also a Nigerian illustrator, Adakunle. And then in the UK, it was. It is a very different market and I've known that from the beginning, like the UK and the US books on every single book is like so different, they're so wild. But I know that we wanted to go for a more classic fantasy look with textures and hints of the inspiration behind it. So I worked with them on finding the right kind of tile work um, to give it the Arabian kind of look. And then this idea of this crack going through the centre of it, because you do see these epic fantasy covers that are very pristine, that are um, often stonework. And actually this crack that goes through the middle of it. I just love that idea. And I just thought that is that's how I feel about the fantasy genre and what I've done with this book in my mind, even though, you know, everyone thinks they're unique, but they're probably not. (laughs) I was like, I'm like the sledgehammer coming through and like cracking what i had seen or what i had believed the fantasy genre to be and so it was just a perfect metaphor for me and it was also this idea of sila coming in and you know is she going to rule or is she going to destroy yeah it was i got to work with them on all of that Um, and then on the inside of the uk cover is another rendition of sila by illustrator kingsley which is also incredible so i did get two silas but only on the inside in the UK, but I, I love both covers, they're both amazing, and I'm just really lucky that I got to be involved so thoroughly, because I've heard a lot of horror stories.
1: And even for the US version with silo there's the threads, the blue, yeah. I know, I was like noticing yeah. all those tiny little details, yeah. and I'm like, oh, and there's this. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, the shell, yeah, there's there's so much in there, Um, which was really fun to kind of go, Oh yeah and then this one this one here yeah, no one's going to get this but I know it
0: <laughs> one of the things that has come out of this obviously is 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 your ability to kind of pay things forward um in the fact that you're doing a, a mentoring process can you explain the process of it the the challenges that have come from it
2: yeah absolutely so from from literally day one of getting my deal, I was like, yes, I'm paying back.
0: <laughs> and then I was like, I don't
2: know anything, but you know, I'm still the same person I was yesterday, but I want to help you. Um so I started working with an organization called Black Girl Writers, which is really interesting because I was literally a nobody like there was nothing, there no one had even my deal announcement hadn't gone out. And you still got a lot of interest because there is a hunger for support in that area, particularly in the UK. Um, And so I think at that time I took on maybe six or eight or something like that. Worked with uh, a cohort for about four months. And then I worked with another batch. I also did, I did pitch wars last year, which was the last year that pitch wars ran. And then I also have collected (laughs) mentees (laughs) over the last few years now. And I do really love it. I don't get paid, but I wouldn't want to because it's, it's something that actually no that's true not true i would absolutely want to get paid if people could afford it <laughs> i'm not i'm not going to force uh, mentees to pay me so it's uh it's great because i get to work with them and encourage them i do think it was a piece that was missing from my experience um i only found kind of a, a writer critique group in the last so it, while i was writing the final strife was when i found them uh which was amazing, and that that was the motivation I needed to help me finish the novel and so even though I do critique and help them with their writing the main the main point of it is the motivation is to hold them accountable but like have you done your two thousand words and it's it's things like that just to keep them going because so many people will stop writing after thirty thousand words it's It's the pattern it 's between thirty and forty thousand words. if you get over that hump, you'll get to the end if you don't you're stopping. And you'll probably come back in 10 years and that's the pattern I've seen and it's just trying to get people over that and so I've worked with people getting them agents and um, supporting them as they got agents um, and giving them advice and it's just been amazing I really I really love it and although w- when I realise like my deadlines really soon I'm like oh I've got seven sessions today <laughs> so I have to be a, a bit more economical with my time but it has been really amazing. And then I've done um, a few things. I did um, some speaking at Faber Academy in the UK and um, HarperCollins Author Academy as well, which is for diverse writers.
0: Jumping onto a more fun-based style question. Why are, why are Tuesdays worse than Mondays?
2: Tuesdays are the worst because (laughs) Mondays, like Mondays, you know, they're coming, you know, they're coming because you're like, oh, it's a Monday. Tuesday, what is it? It's not even like It's not like a filler day. I love a Thursday because, you know, Friday's coming. But Tuesday, it's like it just sneaks up on you. And you're like, what is the point of you? Like, what can't we just go to Wednesday? Because you're just so annoying. You're just sitting there in the week. You're not even midweek. You're not even the beginning of the week. I'm not fresh. I'm not fresh at all. (laughs) I want it to be over. (laughs) So that's why Tuesdays are the worst.
0: (laughs) We we play a game here. We had to rename the the title of it because we're we're, we're family friendly. Uh, we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. Uh, you, okay. So we, we got three. I'm going to give you two categories. I'm going to disguise them by giving them goofy names. And inside that will be three choices you have to make, oh, no. uh, whether you like, love, or and which one you're going to get rid of. Um, so the two categories you have to choose from are casualties of writing, or is this the real life?
2: <laughs> I'm going to go with that one because okay. I don't know where it's going to end up
0: is this the real life or is this just fantasy fantasy series so you've got i'm gonna give you three fantasy series and you've got to like love get rid of one okay. and trust me i'm gonna make this hard oh no so middle earth rift war or earth sea oh yeah no. yes yeah. somebody somebody might have gone through a lot of, of feed and seen them of some bathtub stained books
2: oh no 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 okay so so what are my three options?
0: Like, Christ. love and get rid of.
2: Okay. Oh, my goodness. We can, we're going to be here all day. Um, love, Earthsea. Uh, oh, my goodness. Oh, but Tolkien is a classic, but am I tired of it? I don't know <laughs> if I am. I don't know. Oh, my goodness. Oh I have, you know I can't be here all day because it'll end up being Tuesday I <laughs> can't get to Tuesday. <laughs> um oh I I might say ditch Tolkien because mm-hmm. just because I just ooh, I've got so many copies of it but but yeah I'm going to I'm gonna say ditch ditch Tolkien.
0: It it's one of those that it's just saturated so much I can yes. see how yeah is, you and know, also ripped. there's
2: like no, there's no black people and also there's no women. Well, there are, but not enough. Anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, casualties of writing, because I know you are a fan of tea, I would have made you choose between black, green and matcha.
2: Oh, oh, <laughs> that's a good one, too. <laughs> I'd probably ditch matcha because I prefer it as an ice cream. <laughs>
1: As a fantasy writer, you're also a fantasy reader. So which authors inspired you in the beginning?
2: Oh, I think so. This is really interesting because if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd read off Mm -hmm. a list of very similar white male authors who I still think are incredible. But now I've re-educated myself. I feel like there is, you know, still, still very... You know, very famous, incredible women. I like Toni Morrison, Octavia Butler, Ursula Le Guin is a huge inspiration of mine, N.K. Jemison. Uh, the, the list is endless. Like, there's just so many incredible women that I had never read when I was growing up. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Also, some of them haven't been published, but, you know, the, one, <laughs> the ones that I had. So, yeah, I think it's, it's about celebrating and lifting those up for me
1: what are you currently reading slash watching
2: oh I'm currently reading the second book in the Jasmine Throne series so the Oleander Sword I got an arc of that from Tasha Suri so I am so excited and I'm also actually reading Babel at the same time by Rebecca Kwong so those two on the go at the moment and I've just finished Stranger Things as well
1: oh I actually did too
2: I thought it was the last series, so I was expecting everything to be wrapped up, and I was like,
1: hang on, there's no more episodes. It's like an epic ending, too. You're like, what's going to happen?
2: I know. know. (laughs) Oh, so annoying.
1: So So good, though. That was what my last weekend was, all watching the latest two episodes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Strangest thing in your search history?
2: Oh, um, probably, like, lizard rumps.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: Oh, there's been some real weird ones, but yeah, (laughs) lizard rumps. I did spend like a few weeks just researching drugs as well. Mm -hmm. But aside, not for me. So yeah, so there was there was a lot of that. But no, looking at lizard butts for a few hours on YouTube was intense.
1: I would like to know if anyone else is looking up lizard butts.
2: Uh, surprisingly, a lot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) There should not be that many videos, but there Mm. are. Really? I was like, I need to know how it works with a carriage. Oh,
1: dear. Your YouTube is probably pulling up a bunch of them just as recommended watching. Lizard bus. And oh. Go, no, no. I was just going to say we are a library podcast. You already mentioned a little bit of how libraries you know have influenced you, but would you like to share a little bit more about libraries and how yeah. they impacted your life?
2: <laughs> Absolutely. The libraries were my solace. Um there was a school library that um I didn't have a lot of friends and I spent a lot of time hiding from bullies um and inhaling books and also smelling books because obviously books just smell amazing. Um I yeah, I absolutely lived and breathed in libraries it was i went from um the school library to the public library and that was basically my day <laughs> every day i was allowed to uh one book a year for my birthday one book a year for christmas so i did start developing and growing a collection of books but uh libraries were where i just got through so many so many books and yeah they they're my home you can just walk into any library and be like yeah this is my home
0: as we kind of wrap up here is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners
2: I guess I just hope you enjoy the final strife it's fun it's sprawling it's epic um and also yeah now you know the chaotic mess who wrote the book (laughs) I hope you still like it um but yeah it's uh I'm so proud of it and I'm so pleased it's now out in the world and people can read
1: it.
0: I think it'll be very enjoyable for uh, for, for everybody that picks it up.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a a treat to um, learn more about your writing process. It's one of those books where I could totally reread because I'm like, now I want to know all the little ties and the Easter (laughs) eggs and find them. So I hope everyone else wants to go And back and enjoy it as well especially when more you know get released and then yeah
2: yeah exactly amazing thank you so much for having me on this has been amazing i'm so sorry we talked so much about lizard butts but you know no
0: no no, not not at at all those
1: are always our favorite parts (laughs) Uh, and stephen is really good at bringing about those questions i didn't expect to answer that (laughs)
0: It's my goal in life is to have that, that weird sound bite where I can say, mm-hmm. yeah. what'd you talk about today, yeah. lizard yeah. butts?
2: <laughs>
1: Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has honestly been,
2: yeah, the
1: best. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us on Unstacked. The final strife is available in the library collection for checkout.
0: It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendors. Check out our website, S A A R A E L A R I F I dot icom
1: Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye.
0: Bye.